Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. Our guest today is Kathy Gutierrez, a widely respected and widely published historian of spiritualism and the occult. She taught at Sweetbriar College for 18 years before serving as scholar-in-residence at the New York Public Library. She's written important works on spiritualism and edited incredibly helpful guides like The Occult in 19th Century America and The Handbook of Spiritualism and Channeling that are incredible guides to the complex and fascinating stories we've discussed. Her book, Plato's Ghost, dives deep into the ideas that drove the spiritualist movement. If you've been hoping to hear more about what spiritualists actually believed, then this interview will be a treat for you. Enjoy her conversation with researcher Carl Nellis, and be sure to pick up Kathy's book. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Dr. Kathy Gutierrez. This is the Unobscured Interview Series for Season 2. I'm Aaron Mankey. In the 19th century, what did it mean to be a spiritualist? There's a lot of variety that could go into that designation. It's not uh, unlike people going to psychics today or New Age clinics, something like that. So there are degrees of participation. You could literally go um, as a lark. Right, something to do on a Friday evening because you know it was all the rage and it sounded amusing, and have no serious investment in it intellectually or spiritually at all. You could also uh, use it intermittently. So when people would die, for example, then a lot of people would turn to spiritualism to keep in contact with their lost loved ones. Or you could go the whole enchilada, if you will, which is uh, to self-identify as a spiritualist meant to have particular political connotations as well as a religious belief structure. And if you told people you were a spiritualist, there are some possible negative ramifications to that. Some people found it... um, well, between sketchy and demonic, depending on how hardcore they were in their beliefs. and But it really, to be able to self-identify as a spiritualist meant buying into this worldview of progress and the ultimate um, you know, goodness of, of people. So even if the ultimate goodness of people was not you know, currently manifesting itself, it would over time, right? It would unfold in the direction of progress. Everybody would get better. Everybody would improve unto perfection. So let's talk about uh, some of what was going on in American life and American culture that led to the practice of spiritualism. In the decades before, um, 
it's part of part of what makes the movement so fascinating is that it fed on movements in science, it fed on movements in religion. Um, let's start with religion. In American life in the 1830s and 40s, leading up to what came to be known as modern spiritualism, how would you describe kind of the American religious landscape? Booming. Um, from about 1825 to 1850, you see an extraordinary expansion of different uh, kinds of religions imported to America and different religions developed in America. So I understand you've talked some about the utopian movements, um, and those are all coming out of, of this period, right? So the um, the Shakers are expanding wildly. The Mormons are, you know, developing. The Oneida community is developing, and spiritualism is among the the last gasp of that uh, great religious fervor. So there are a lot of things that people need to take new account of, and. Uh, Baby religions don't start when the established ones are working. So when you have a, a new landscape that requires creating new meaning, that's when you see uh, religions, you know, just go you know, wildfire, right? Uh, as the burned over district in upstate New York was called, and uh, spiritualism is among the last and certainly the most inclusive of uh, those religions that were. So let's let's talk a little bit about one of those traditions that spiritualists very um, consciously identified as one of the traditions they were inheriting. And um, I'll ask you, can you describe a little bit about the place that Emanuel Swedenborg and the New Church played in that religious landscape? Swedenborg's effect on American religious landscape cannot be overestimated. He really does not get enough credit for his impact on any of the movements that began during the Second Great Awakening. And he's highly influential on, on all of them, frankly. So what Swedenborg Swedenborg does is he creates a dynamic Protestantism. So Catholicism has always been dynamic in terms of there are multiple saints, right? There are, you know, there's continuing miracles. There's uh, ongoing conversations from God. So these ideas of direct revelation, direct experience of the afterlife, and what you find in Swedenborg's afterlife is very busy. It's busy, busy. It's a very Protestant this worldly. So there are three tiers in heaven, and people are getting better and forming societies and making friends and literally learning languages and moving, right? There's progress. And then there are three tiers in hell. And you, uh, but, but God's not judging. This is not an apocalyptic God. So if you're a bad person, you literally just throw yourself into hell. You are drawn to the appropriate realm of where you belong in the afterlife, whether that's yay or nay. So we, it's removed from a sort of Protestant literalism, uh, both because it is only somewhat dependent on the Bible. He has this radically metaphorical reading of the Bible, which is, you know, frankly, a bit Catholic, um, and. It, has, it just moves away from the sort of static heaven and hell. Um, 
So this idea of movement in the afterlife, this idea of a non-judgmental God, this idea that you determine your own afterlife fate, what spiritualism does, and that's what Mormonism does to a in a different uh, form, is it it takes those six spheres, it turns them into a platonic seven, and it projects it all into heaven. So it eliminates hell completely. And uh, early Mormonism does the same thing. There's a little tiny hell, and it's reserved for apostates. There are three tiers of heaven, and you're a good person, a better person, or the best person. You know, win, win, win. Uh, so spiritualism does that uh, for absolutely everyone. And the movement is continual. So rather than you get placed in the correct sphere and then you form societies there, you're always going up, right? You're always going up through different echelons of spiritualism in the afterlife. You're always improving. So that's one of the major theological uh, influences on spiritualism. Let's talk about uh, some of the other practices that were going on in what was considered a kind of a horizon of science with mesmerism and animal magnetism uh, and what was seen as a new science, uh, you know, sometimes combined with, with phrenology um, of the human mind and the human soul. What was the influence of those kind of practices on the beginnings of spiritualism? Mesmerism, as it came to America, um, which was really more the uh, the brainchild of um, a uh, the student of Anton Mesmer is a healing science, right? And I, I say is because we still carry around beliefs that um, magnets will affect different parts of your body. So I I know you know workers, for example, who you know have magnetic soles in their shoes or have magnets on their backs. That is mesmerism uh, still in practice. But mesmerism was looking for a single cause, right? So the discovery of gravity, for example, was like, oh, well, that answers 90% of our questions, right? <laughs> uh, and it's universal, right? Gravity works everywhere at all times. So people were looking uh, for things like that, but regarding the human body. So the idea that the cosmos is held up by magnets goes back to Aristotle, right? Not magnets. He didn't know the word magnets, I don't think. But the the idea that uh, why don't stars fall out of the sky, right? Why are planets predictable? It's like, well, they're held in some sort of um, you know, kinetic tension through magnetic attraction. Uh, certainly, uh, Kepler thought this. And so, what uh, Mesmer did was he applied that idea to the human body. So, not only the planets, but the the tides and the sea and the waning of the moon and the flow of this energy through the body could be redirected and redistributed. And uh, this was a, a single cause theory uh, that, you know, was extremely successful. Uh, whether one thinks that you could attribute most of that to the placebo effect, I personally don't even know why that matters. It was extremely successful. And the marriage of this idea of continual improvement and your 
sort of psychological disposition uh, went hand in hand, right? And certainly some of the earliest spiritualist mediums were uh, mesmeric trance healers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one of the ways that you describe this moment in American history, and, and many other historians do as well, is to call what was going on at this time with, with new ideas, new literary movements, uh, to call it the American Renaissance. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that idea and how that helps to frame an understanding of spiritualism that we can use? The phrase the American Renaissance was originally employed by uh, scholars of literature to refer to when Americans really started having their own publishing business. So you can place it basically at James Fenimore Cooper. Uh, so prior to that, Americans are reading things that they can get from Britain. And uh, but from Cooper on, and certainly we get to Poe, and then you know the the great Emerson and you know friends. What you you have is this triangulation between uh, Philadelphia, Boston, and New York that creates uh, publishing lines, and so this sort of you know refers to that moment because obviously the self publication and the ability to move that. Uh, these books into the interior via rivers uh, was you know, crucial for the development of, of basically all of these new religions. Every one of them were, you know, used printing presses. Uh, but I use it specifically to also mean the American enchantment with the classics. And I mean Greeks and Romans and Egyptians classics. And I attribute it to the uh, Discomforting sense of newness right? that uh, in America we're we're so pleased with ourselves. If we, there's a building that's 300 years old, you know, we slap a plaque on it and you know put it on the National Register. But that that had to have been extremely uncomfortable, uh, particularly you know 1825. Everybody's grandpa was you know on the other side of the war. Right? I mean, how uncomfortable was that? So this idea that we needed a legitimating, grounding story uh, comes through, I think, in all of the, the new religions during that movement. And they all seek to place America in uh, a much longer tradition of what everyone considered uh, to be venerable. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that we see in early spiritualism uh, is that there are spirits like Benjamin Franklin and George Washington, William Penn, other statesmen appearing in various seance circles and trance lectures and um, sometimes just addressing one or two people, sometimes addressing large crowds. Um, can you talk a little bit about what these kinds of appearances tell us about spiritualism's relation to, to history and this kind of bigger story that you're talking about? Absolutely. Well, spiritualism allowed through its construction uh, to do two things. Number one, you always had the the greats of history to hand. Right? They might not want to talk to you today, but Ben Franklin will talk to you tomorrow, as will Swedenborg, as will Shakespeare, as will Francis Bacon. Uh, so you, you have access to these great luminaries uh, in unprecedented ways. Simultaneously, however, a lot of them changed their mind after death. So if you said something, you know, what 
was considered uh, immoral, uh, according to you know 1852 culture of progressive spiritualists, you could learn after death that you were wrong. So um, Plato becomes an abolitionist. <laughs> uh, Franklin, of course, is a great American hero, and the whole idea of spiritualism is predicated on the idea of the telegraph. If you can have invisible communication across time and space, why can't you have invisible communication between life and death? Right, instantaneous communication. So the trope of electricity was extremely important, but frankly, nobody understood it. So uh, they relied a lot on Franklin to uh, sort of explain how electricity worked and how this affected mediumship and how to, you know, and what the you know the great plans for the future are. And certainly, the same thing with Washington. And this, uh, again, this building of um, a legitimate, solid history that could simultaneously evoke, you know, American and exceptionalism is too strong of a word, but American importance, and also give people uh, space to learn posthumously. Mm -hmm. And you've written about the ways that, uh, in your view, spiritualism and and what spiritualists were doing and practicing and teaching. Um, presents a picture of uh, of people um, uncomfortable with time. You say spiritualism represents a discomfort with time. And so we've mentioned a little bit about what this means for how spiritualists view the past. Can you also talk about uh, what you mean when you say that spiritualists um, were kind of uh, in love with futurity? That's nicely put. Uh, yes, indeed, in love with futurity. The prevailing belief this had some hiccups obviously but that you know everything was progressing right everything was on this path to perfection the world is getting better we're going to conquer the social crimes and you know when you die you continually get better so the the future was um, utopian but not set if that makes any sense. So like a lot of people said, um, if, if you're in a traditional sort of Christian apocalyptic worldview, right, you know, the apocalypse is going to come at point X and then the good people are going to, you know, have a grand time for a thousand years and then go up to the New Jerusalem. The bad people are going to fry. Um, and that, you know, has a very specific goal. And the People make the mistake of setting dates. Right? I tell all my students, if you're going to start a baby religion, never set a date. Uh, because you know, verification becomes a problem when the date rolls around and the world is still here. So the spiritualists never set a date. right? They, they had a, a slow, gradual improvement plan. And they need only look around to see things that were not working. They, very clearly, Victorian America had you know, all sorts of problems with... Even post Civil War, you know, Reconstruction was a disaster. The you know state of women and children was awful. Factories, you know, the White Plague, tenement houses, etc. So there were projects on Earth, but everything was marching toward this utopian future, which would have as handmaids, medicine, technology, science. That all of these conceptual systems were going to work together to usher in this future perfection. That's great. 
So with these kind of some of the big picture beliefs and historical context, you even I'm glad you mentioned uh, technology with the telegraph and and the canals and being able to move information. Um, let's jump into some of the lives of the people who who developed and uh, and dispersed the movement. And let's start where so many historians do with Andrew Jackson Davis. Who was Andrew Jackson Davis? And what was significant about him in the context of some of these things like mesmerism and the burned over district? Andrew Jackson Davis was a guy from Poughkeepsie, New York, uh, who was called the Poughkeepsie Seer. Fabulous title. And he was a mesmeric trance healer. He was also a um, wildly prolific author. And he wrote dozens of books that would go into many, many editions over the course of his lifetime on um, basically it was a Swedenborgian take on the the future of you know dead people and a mesmeric take on the future of live people and he he put these things together in uh, what he called the harmonial philosophy and the harmonial philosophy was very palatable you're talking a world in which you know bloodletting still happened and you know people did not yet understand that clean linens would cut down on you know the spread of disease. So the the idea that you could you know, have be magnetized and have a conversation one-on-one -on -one with this person who was listening to you and who was sincerely trying to make your life better and that your disposition would improve, this was all extremely palatable given the medical landscape of the time. So He's trooping around uh, publishing books on the harmonial philosophy. At the time, he precedes the Fox sisters by many years. And so when he hears about the Fox sisters and the so-called mysterious wrappings, he melds his worldview with their experiential uh, ritual, if you will. And that was the marriage that needed mm -hmm. happening. Um, can you describe? He gave theology to their ritual, and they brought ritual to his philosophy. <laughs> Beautifully put. Oh, that's great. I'm glad you said that. Um, can you describe a little bit about how responsible he was for what you described earlier, where you say, in general, spiritualist theology of the afterlife was taking Swedenborgian heaven and hell and plopping it all into heaven. How responsible for that idea was Andrew Jackson Davis, and how did he kind of frame it? How did he talk about it in his writing? Oh, he was very, very much responsible for that in so many important ways. Uh, obviously, other people had to have the uh, experiential. You know, so, when you're talking to a dead person, if they're like, "Oh, hi, I'm on the second rung, but I think I'm going to make it to the third rung pretty soon because I've done this and this," uh, then you know you needed that sort of reinforcement for his, you know, what I call his theological backbone to have worked. However, uh, he was um you know very like like most mystics he was infuriating in that he claimed to never have read anything including Swedenborg nobody believes this but you know the the idea that well if i made this all you know up myself i'm clearly not smart enough to do that so it must come from the spirits right um so what he does uh, 
he casts the whole afterlife. He calls it the Summerland. And he himself makes many Swedenborgian-style trips to the afterlife where he hangs out uh, with famous dead people, with literary figures. People prognosticate on things like the future of Prussia, uh, the coming of the American Civil War. Uh, and what he finds uh, in the afterlife is uh, complete gender equality. He finds religious equality, sort of. Let me expand on that in just a sec. So everyone goes to heaven, and but they're segregated, <laughs> weirdly, in uh, Andrew Jackson Davis's writing. So they're like you know little towns of Jews and little towns of Hindus and little towns of you know Catholics and, um, but. Because everybody is improving, right, there's only one perfection. So everybody is moving toward the same ultimate goal. So again, you're simultaneously radically progressive in thinking that everyone in the entire universe across time and space goes to heaven. Super progressive. On the other hand, you do then get to say, and I am quoting, and I am physically making little bunny fingers right now, the lower tribes and races, unquote, um, are, you know, on the, the baby step rungs, right? So you include them, but it's not untouched by its own historical moment, right, which is just rampant with colonialism and, you know, racism and... So it's a step forward. I'm, you know, they are fantastic in terms of that step forward, but it's not completely what we would consider to be, you know, morally equivalent. Mm -hmm. if you and that's will. something that we really are able to explore when we see spiritualism through Sojourner Truth's eyes. And um, I'm really loving, I didn't, you know, understand before I started this project to what extent Sojourner Truth was involved in spiritualism, but some of the things that she notices and comments on over the course of her life really, really do bring that to the fore, where she says, this is great, but <laughs> here are the limitations. Here are how far we, here's how far we've come. Here's how far we still have to go. Um, Absolutely. There were really a, a number of African Americans who made it as mediums uh, in part because of the, frankly, uh, racist belief that, you know, their people, if you will, are, are closer to a spiritual naivete and therefore, you know, more easily able to access the afterlife. So there were people in the Underground Railroad, for example, who were mediums in Quaker homes in uh, New York. And these women knew that they were sort of playing the white people, right? So simultaneously, they were able to really carve an important niche for themselves and be appreciated. But they also knew that this was the, uh, the sort of flip side of uh, romanticizing, you know, their their own heritage. And you see the same thing uh, so often uh, from the beginning, but especially into the 1870s with spiritualists channeling native spirit guides or mediums having spirit controls where it's uh, a romanticized native uh, nation 
you know, a chief or uh, a young girl that kind of presents uh, Native nations and, and, you know, the Indian wars in a kind of romanticized and sentimentalized light through, through those seances where it's usually almost always a white medium who is playing Indian in that way. Absolutely. And that still continues. There, it is. It remains extraordinarily popular for current spiritualists to have Native American, um, you know, mm-hmm. spirit guides. Well, let's jump back to the beginning. I loved what you said about the way that Andrew Jackson Davis picked up and and uh, and used what the Fox sisters were doing. But let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about about Hydesville and what happened there in 1848. Um, not so much the details, but what. What was it about that particular experience? Because, you know, as we mentioned before, there were other kinds of trances and mediumship uh, that were happening before this. But what made what happened in Hydesville explode and become a movement? You know, go from kind of a neighbor neighborhood uh, hullabaloo into uh, into this huge movement that grows into something global within a couple of years. That is an excellent question, and scholars do like to throw down about uh, dating spiritualism to the Fox sisters because phenomenologically there are multiple – there there are always women in trances, right? That is one of the few cross-cultural truisms, and that is clearly a way for women to – you know, find a way to speak powerfully from the margins. So what – you know, what makes – you know, Hydesville, important, right? It's it's a haunting. It's a poltergeist. Uh, well, to be perfectly frank, it's their older sister, Leah. She understands. She sees exactly the monetary value in this from the minute it starts. She rewrites the script to put her baby sisters at the center, which is really not historically true or not provable, at least. And uh, she takes them in. And she, you know, puts them in the Rochester shows and their wraps all in these these halls. And this concatenation of, again, a telegraphy, right? So the, the Fox sisters did this very clunky, um, the wrap system was like one for A, two for B, right? It took forever. And, but that's like a, a 13-year-old's version of Morse code, and that's exactly what it was. It was a 13-year-old's version of Morse code. So this idea of a telegraph to the dead with this combination of a ongoing revelation, but not in a way that was going to truly upset the, you know, the Bible crowd. Well, it upset some of them, but you know, by and large, there should be no particular conflict with being a Christian and thinking that you can talk to you know your deceased uncle George. Right? That's not a, you know a major logical you know hazard. So, but Leah really saw the potential in this, and she just she put those girls on the road immediately. She basically. No, what's the nicer word for this? Uh, she hooked them up with P.T. Barnum immediately. They were put in a train to New York. Uh, she was um, an organizer, and she died a very, very wealthy woman, whereas both of her younger sisters were extremely miserable their entire lives. And 
uh, had these really tragic, uh, lonely deaths. So there was this, you know, perfect storm, if you will, of these historical movements, and then this really smart woman who saw how to capitalize. And on there it. are so many people who saw spiritualism that way from the get-go, where they see what's going on with promoting and organizing big lectures and halls and demonstrations, and they come on the scene doing the same thing, not so much from Andrew Jackson Davis's side with the theology and the mysticism, but very much from the performance side and the spectacle side. And Daniel Douglas Hume is maybe the most successful of those. Can you talk about who he was and what he did with the spectacle of spiritualism? He is a very interesting man. Uh, he had a somewhat difficult uh, childhood, and some of it is uh, obscured to us. So it appears that his mom did a disappearing act when he was young, and he was imported from Edinburgh to uh, the United States, where he was raised by an aunt. And uh, he had the good fortune, as did many successful mediums, of being uh, not only charismatic, but extremely good looking. And the idea of these sort of spectacles, or what's now called physical mediumship, uh, that were then you know, sometimes called you know, materializations, right, uh, that were shows, right, rather than I'm just going to sit here with you and tell you what your, you know, your child who died of influenza is doing in the afterlife. Uh, these were, you know, as you know, full-blown shows with trumpets and things called the ports, which were gifts from the afterworld, generally things like gloves and flowers that have been phosphorescent. Uh, but Hom was uh, unique in that he levitated. And I don't mean tables. And I don't mean trumpets, I mean him. Uh, so he would somehow fully bodily rise up off the ground and in what was indisputably his most astonishing act in, I believe it was London, uh, he once flew out of one window, across a street, and into another window. Fantastic. And he attributed this to... The spirit. Uh, naturally, this is the sort of uh, shenanigans that's going to get Houdini's attention, uh, but I'm sort of pleased to say Houdini couldn't replicate it. He could never mm -hmm. figure out how mm -hmm. he did it. And along the way, uh, he makes a lot of friends in high places that get him through the doors that you might never expect someone from his background to uh, places you, you would never expect someone like him to go. Do you do you remember any of those connections or or demonstrations? Who, some of the people that he met. Oh yes, he uh, is investigated by an earl who is assigned his case essentially to see if he can disprove it, and he cannot. So he ends up um, sort of hobnobbing with the uh, Scottish and British upper crust. The biography is tricky because a lot of it relies on the, uh, the the writings of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And Doyle was such an avid spiritualist that he is thoroughly blinded to any anything that might 
undercut its veracity. So according to Doyle, uh, Didi Holm never took a penny in his life uh, for his spiritualist you know, inquiries. Uh, Doyle does say, rather charmingly, that you know, of course he had to take gifts, but it would have been ghost to refuse them, so that should not be confused with money. Uh, but he did end up in, you know, these these upper circles that actually enabled him to uh, marry not one but two uh, Russian, you know, sort of sub royalty people, uh, and that, you know, that that kept him uh, more in the style to which he wanted to become accustomed. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Um, there was there was a before before whom gets back to. To the UK, though, um, there were other American mediums that were taking the American style of spiritualism to England um, in the early 1850s. Can you talk about uh, before Hume and and others like him were, you know, had the chance to hobnob with the upper crust? Can you talk about the general uh, reception of spiritualism in its American mode uh, in the UK? That's a little big of a question. Um, spiritualism was embraced in Great Britain, uh, and it was obviously, a, again, a very much a, a class and race disruptor. So you would have these uh, – one of the, the pretenses of spiritualism is if you have a, a young woman or a girl who – can you know expound on you know these great points of philosophy and theology and science that she's obviously not smart enough to be able to make this up so therefore it is an indication of the truth right that she is being embodied by you know Benjamin Franklin or Francis Bacon or whomever uh, so that had a, a great appeal to sort of the Victorian polar life. But you would end up in these weird situations where you're employing, a, you know, a, a woman who is not as um, posh, right, as the people for whom she is doing these readings. And these women would, you know, sometimes live with these folks for months on on end, and it was uh, it was very popular as a well, as entertainment in, in many ways. In, in England, spiritualism actually really took off uh, after the First World War. So America had the Civil War to catalyze, uh, if you will, this need to talk to the dead. And that simply didn't happen uh, in Europe for you know, another you know, 40 years. So it existed, but it's actual religiosity as a very sort of strong base um, that really is an American phenomenon that, to the best of my knowledge, did not translate well until they had had their own uh, catastrophic cultural experience to try to mm -hmm. work mm -hmm. their way through. Can you talk about uh, Emma Harding? Who was she and uh, what brought her to become a prominent medium? Uh, Emma Harding is one of my favorite mediums. Um, in fact, she's uh, 
She's buried in Manchester, England, and I have been, I've spent several hours trooping around looking for her grave. I fear it's one of the ones that has collapsed. But um, Emma, uh, you know, came to America. She was a musician, and she uh, became a, a spiritualist medium, and then later she got involved with theosophy. She uh, married a, a publisher and uh, avid spiritualist, and she was well-respected by basically everyone, <laughs> which is rare uh, in, in these this world. So uh, Emma started off with uh, doing trans lectures, and she was very erudite and very articulate. And she, uh, over time, became what I consider to be probably still the most important historian of spiritualism. And she wrote this massive compendium using primary sources, which how she collected all of that in, you know, the 19th century, I have no idea, uh, and put it together in what sort of created a coherent narrative of spiritualism. So while it is um, possible, right, very early on to say, yes, I thoroughly believe that everyone goes to heaven, and I thoroughly believe that humanity is improving, and I thoroughly believe that uh, someday everybody will be perfect. Uh, it is not yet possible to talk about an evolution of spiritualism. And uh, Emma made that happen. She also was not afraid to uh, accede some points, right? So like Doyle never wants a seeded point. Uh, if you, you know, very clearly said, look, you know, that fairy is made of cardboard. He was like, no, it wasn't. It was a real fairy. I saw a picture of it. Right. Whereas Emma was like, yeah, you know, that was that was a little um, untoward that moment. And but, you know, you can't always rely on the spirits to show up on any given day. So some people cheat. What you going to do? Yeah, that's great. Um, you you mentioned her her 1870 book uh, with the history of the original documents, which is so key. But uh, you also write a little bit about what she wrote in 1860. She she'd been a medium on the New York scene, right, in the 1850s, and and done some circuit lecturing uh, across the United States. Can you talk about how uh, her writing in 1860 with the theology of spiritualism helped to synthesize the beliefs in the movement uh, at that point? Yes. So again, this. Uh, there's a paradox at, at the heart of having a, a movement run by women who are not credentialed. Uh, and that is that to some extent, what they have to say is gauged by how it is not believable that they could have constructed it. So um, in six lectures uh, on theology, she has a collective group of spirits that uh, speak to her about, you know, big picture. So it's not, uh, you know, a particular question about a particular person. It, it's really more of a, a synthesized worldview. And that was... Um, 
not generally thought of as something that, you know, she was better educated than a lot of uh, spiritualist mediums, but that, you know, she could have just produced uh, on her own. So that was really um, a landmark moment. And as I say, she was not afraid to uh, call out, you know, people who were cheating. And that really, you know, helped her reputation, to be perfectly frank. So she was broadly, broadly respected and uh, crossed several uh, divisions that other people could not. So when people tried to smear her for, you know, hanging out with, uh, you know, Pascal Beverly Randolph, who was a... um, African-American sex magician, it didn't stick because her reputation was basically too strong to, you know, be besmirched by these little whispers of this impropriety or that impropriety. That said, there are a couple of books that she published, which she claims not to be the author of, uh, that are still contested as to whether or not she is the author. And people, I truly respect will throw down on both sides of this question. So, uh, yes, yeah, so I, I just, I don't, you know, the jury is still out on that as far as I'm concerned. So why would she write something and not put her name on it, right? She said a lot of shocking things. Why would she back away from this particular shocking thing? Um, but other people think, no, absolutely. She, she did not write it. And you know, there are these anonymous, you know, and some pseudonyms like Louis, uh, you know, so, you know, who was Louis is, is still a, a live question in some circles. <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned the the whispers about her relationship with Randolph. Um, but spiritual, uh, you know, uh, like opposition to spiritualism and, and mediumship and some of the doctrines and things, um, it could be as as focused as that. But there were also some some really big kind of culture wide forces opposing spiritualism. Can you talk a little bit about um, what some of those kind of fights looked like? What were some of spiritualism's antagonists, and and what kind of form did the opposition often well, take? One of spiritualism's major antagonists was uh, the New York Times, and it had. Uh, Decades-long uh, fun of poking at you know spiritualism, and they would send reporters, um, like this, the Herald, right? Uh, they would send reporters to spiritualist you know summer camps, and the reporters would you know send back these missives that they were a little disappointed that the people were nice and they weren't like overtly kooky, uh, but you know it was it was a you know a punching bag, right? Uh, so there were certain tone issues right? uh, with the more sort of uh, learned Americans, if you will. Uh, but there were also uh, certainly some hardcore Christians who thought that this looked demonic, right? That if you are, if you have, you know, a, a, a poor uh, man and most of the successful mediums were lower class, uh, or a young woman who has different voices speaking, you know, out of them, that looks like demon possession. So there was some pushback from uh, more sort of hardcore uh, Christian groups. But mostly it was 
uh, dismissed, right? It was uh, sort of embarrassing rather than dangerous. And there were there were events and there were reasons why some might dismiss spiritualism. Um, can you talk about how the Fox sisters reacted when their relative, Mrs. Culver, published an account of Maggie admitting to her that the raps were staged? Or um, the February 1851 investigation by the University of Buffalo faculty, after which the professors, you know, they say that the girls were making sounds with popping joints and kind of the same kind of thing that their relative accused them of. Um, what effect did, did that kind of early negative press have on spiritualism? Because this was in 1851, so the movement continues on. But uh, what was the response to that among spiritualists? The response to that was largely what you see today uh, in terms of what you truly wish to believe you're really not going to hear anything that opposes it. <laughs> so the uh, there are certain conundra, like you know, again, and you you still hear this today. I was I was just uh, in Lilydale a couple of weeks ago, and this is remains a, a mantra for people who are caught cheating, if you will, that the you know the spirits don't always show up so you you've got to have something in your back pocket uh and that uh alan kardec uh, once said that the existence of uh fake flowers does not disprove the existence of real ones so the idea that because there are occasional cheaters or that an actual medium occasionally cheats uh, is sort of easily incorporated in, into the worldview and does uh, very little for one's confirmation bias, to be perfectly frank, of uh, what... So if you thought they were ridiculous to begin with, you continued to think they were ridiculous after the, the Buffalo investigations. And if you thought they were the real deal, but, you know, they were just kids put in this awkward position, so you know, sometimes it got slippery, then that's what you thought. Uh, it was was much uh, clearer when later in life, uh, you know, they said themselves, you know, oh, I've been faking. <laughs> uh, but absolutely nobody cared. It was absolutely astonishing. Nobody cared. They're like, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't really believe you. You're a you're a poor thing. You're like Maggie died terribly. She was all by herself, and she was a raging alcoholic, and she had this. You know, very miserable life of you know being put on the road and you know this potential marriage that may or may not have happened and her you know in-laws disavowing her and you know she you know, she drank the woman drank and the servant so was like oh well she just needs money you know and then when she came back she's like no no I faked the faking it was again well she needs money. Uh, so it it just got eaten into the system as uh, an anomaly. And if you have a, a worldview that says that the spirits can make mistakes, then people can make mistakes, and they're not permanent, right? We're, it's it's a it's a flexible, forgiving worldview in many ways. One of the people who so interestingly looks at the way that both people and spirits make mistakes um, is John Edmonds, um, Judge John Edmonds, who was on the New York State Supreme Court 
Uh, and because of that position uh, was sometimes a punching bag, uh, sometimes a celebrity among spiritualists. Can you talk a little bit about who he was and especially his, you, you've written about his sustained interest in exploring the primary theological conundrum of spiritualism, as you address it, uh, through his inquiry into the bottom rung of heaven. Um, who was he and, and what was the significance of that intellectual theological work that he was doing? Well, Judge Edmonds had a very fancy uh, circle of uh, spiritualists in Manhattan, and he and George T. Dexter produced a two-volume book on spiritualism that was uh, first came out in 1852. It went through numerous, numerous printings, and uh, it's a very uh, singular source of uh, being able to track what a circle does over many, many years because he would actually add footnotes to uh, particular seances. So here he was talking to, you know, this person, and then they would, you know, contact that person again in these ensuing years, and then this material would uh, accrete in the footnotes. So you can really get this uh, this narrative arc in a way that you can't with more sort of static publications. So Edmonds was very important, uh, not only in New York, but he is also partly uh, the reason that seances ever happened in the White House under the Lincoln administration. And he was uh, good friends with, you know, Senator Talmadge. So he was a uh, central in bringing spiritualism to the, the political stage. Now, as a person, he was you know, a judge of actual criminal cases. And he was also in charge of, uh, he was administrator for uh, New York State prisons, which were abhorrent. So he has a sort of vocational interest in what happens to criminals in the afterlife. And when I talk about the central conundrum of spiritualism, the idea that Everybody is heading for heaven is very lovely and multicultural, uh, but you do end up with this this question of what happens to bad people. And what happens to bad people is uh, generally a very redemptive story. And these are the folks that uh, Edmonds is interested in talking to. So when he meets a criminal uh, in the afterlife, uh, you know, through his medium, then the one of the first questions he actually has to ask is whether he is responsible for that person being hanged. So the psychological effects, right, of, of being uh, you know, in this position of adjudicating life and death, I, I think uh, spill over into his, uh, you know, his his evenings, right, and his uh, spirit circles. And he tracks several of these criminals over many years and many seances. And they're, they're generally, not always, uh, but generally fairly uh, uplifting stories of uh, redemption. So the, the bottom rung of heaven really resembles uh, hell, but it is uh, one in which there's no administration. So the 
the nasty character of the denizens of, of this lowest rung uh, make this a hellscape. They're awful to each other. They're physically awful to each other. They, um, they torture animals. They repeatedly try to kill each other, but they're already dead. So it's just this protracted um, dying scenes that are going on constantly. And he hones in on uh, those who want to be better. And he, oddly, in some senses, is in a position to help them because he actually knows more about the afterlife than many of them do. So uh, crime in heaven is heavily, heavily gendered. So women are, um, you know, salacious. They cheat on their husbands. And um, worst of all, and this this charge is so rampant, it really makes me wonder what was going on. Uh, they murder children, their own children in particular. And men um, have, you know, yeah, if you will, you know, much butcher crimes. So they're, um, you know, murderers and brigands and rapists and, you know, generally thieves and scoundrels. So, uh, the the women are generally more um, sympathetic, and he. Uh, so there's this one particular woman that he he connects with, and she, you know, had the, the terrible terrible taste to leave her husband uh, to go off with her lover, who of course turned out to be a scoundrel, and uh, he left her, and she killed herself. So. She is, you know, on the bottom rung of heaven, but she's obviously, you know, not a menace to society in any way. Uh, so she is able to be reformed. And the, the story that this shapes into is that she finds um, a kid, a little girl, you know, seven-ish. It's entirely unclear what the, the child is doing uh, in this uh, nasty you know, <laughs> apocalyptic heaven, but um, she rescues this kid. She gets the this kid away from uh, these terrible bullies and you know, horrible men, and runs uh, runs away from this society of of evil. And over time, and you can track this through the footnotes, the the woman repeatedly starts seeing signs that say, you know, go in this direction, right? Um, sometimes they're actual signs and sometimes they're, you know, flames, right? Like Moses in the desert. And she takes this kid and they have this arduous journey over this mountain. Um, but so they're not being, you know, in this mutual punishment uh, any longer, but it's still difficult. And they eventually get to the second rung. And she reports back that they're much happier and they're going to keep going, right? And so this, he is able to counsel uh, these, the dead and say, you know, look around. Uh, where can you get away from this chaos? Uh, do you see anything that's beckoning you in a particular direction? Uh, follow it and, you know, get back in touch with me. Tell me what happens. On the other hand, you have um, less sympathetic people, generally men, uh, who are punished by the memories of their crimes. So this is very Swedenborgian, um, and 
what happens in Swedenborg, right? There's no judging God. So God would not condemn you to evil because God is good. So you condemn yourself. And you have these two memories. And one is the normal memory that you think you have, right? That mind gets worse all the time, right? And then there's an actually perfect memory that when you die, uh, gets stripped off of you and you and an angel watch it like a future film. And after you see your entire ethical disposition throughout the course of your life, you then know where you belong, right? And you will cast yourself into uh, hell as appropriate if you've been a bad person. And hell, again, very much resembles the the first rung of heaven. You know, there's no Catholic devil, you know, with a you know tail and a trident uh, hanging out in Swedenborg's hell. People are just dreadful, and they're dreadful to each other. And you're in this dreadful position for eternity. So, but in this sort of reformed Swedenborgian, more progressive uh, spiritualist caste. The, these men are haunted by these memories of the people that they have wronged, and they generally have to make amends. So, and I'm getting this from an amalgamation of, of uh, Judge Edmonds and a couple of other places, but this would go along the lines of showing up at a seance and telling people right, that, oh, I stole your stuff, but I buried it here, and I'm terribly sorry, and this is how you can find it. Um, or there's a very clear case with a Florence Marriott, who was a uh, quite popular uh, British novelist. Her her daughter had uh, died young, and her daughter had gotten an abortion. And she was carrying the memory of this child around for years and years and years. And she makes amends by coming to a seance and telling a young friend of hers not to get an abortion. And this rectifies her position, and then she's able to let go of this memory and move on. You mentioned in passing that one of the things that Edmonds witnesses at this lowest rung of heaven, is people torturing animals. And I find that so interesting because one of the stories that Edmonds tells about himself, I believe, uh, and what, what brought him to become a spiritualist is that when he was a kid, the spirit of Benjamin Franklin, I think, if I'm remembering this right, watches him stone and kill a cat and then decides that he's going to guide Edmonds out of cruelty and into right living. So it sounds like what he ends up doing in these later seances is trying to offer to the spirits what the spirit of Benjamin Franklin in his telling offered to him in his life on earth. That's fascinating. Oh, that is fascinating. That's a very interesting take on that. The, the role of pets in spiritualism continues to be fascinating. Uh, I was just at uh, Lilydale a couple of weeks ago. It's the oldest running spiritualist uh, community in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, their emphasis on, uh, they, they have pet seances and uh, a very extensive pet cemetery, which, uh, so the, the idea that your beloved animals continue with you through eternity Personally, I can think of a, no stronger argument, you know, <laughs> uh, for belief in spiritualism mm -hmm. than you know to have my dog with me forever. Uh, so the but that's not an early 
spiritualist moment. But the idea that bad people torture animals uh, is, mm -hmm. is there right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, so you did mention that Edmonds is one of the people who brings spiritualism to the political stage. Um, by 1854, there's so much interest in spiritualism. It's, it's grown to the point where there are 15,000 people who sign a petition to the United States Senate to fund a scientific commission to investigate spiritualism. Can you talk about uh, how that came about and, and what the result was? So at that point, you actually have politicians worrying about the spiritualist vote. And uh, so this is clearly a, a matter of you know, some concern for a lot of people. There are a number of commissions, uh, you know, it's the Saber Commission, uh, different university commissions, but the the commission to study spiritualism as a government project uh, is is really uh, quite extensive, <laughs> and you end up right. So there, there are a couple of forms that this this takes. So one is a, a series of uh, councils where they would bring in a popular medium. So um, Cora Hatch, for example, uh, was allowed herself to be subjected to uh, one of these, and they would ask these questions, uh, trying to trick her. Right, and so there's this one commission where they um, asked her questions like, "How do you parse the divinity of Jesus Christ, both human and divine, and how do gyroscopes work?" And she answered these questions uh, in a trance state to such effect that. The commission, which was, you know, literally comprised of, like, stodgy old military men, uh, was like, hmm, that was impressive. <laughs> and, uh, in fact, and I, I am quoting, one of them said, I expected to be humbugged and was not. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> in in this manner, right, they would, they would test individual mediums. And then there was a um, rather embarrassing <laughs> uh, moment in which... Uh, the the Fox sisters, uh, Maggie and Kate, were uh, put on a, a ship uh, with a bunch of spiritualists. There was a there was an island uh, in uh, the New York Sound where they hanged criminals, and there was a pirate, uh, John Hicks, uh, who was about to be hanged, and the. So there's this floating uh, seance, basically, that is surrounding this island with the expectation that at the moment of uh, this this guy's death, that they would be able to communicate with him. Well, embarrassingly enough, the the spiritualists, uh, you know, much like graduate students. Um, were so excited about the free food and drink that they completely missed the hanging and uh, were like busily chowing down on the cucumber sandwiches and no communication whatsoever uh, took place. That's fantastic. Um, you mentioned Cora Hatch and she's someone I want to talk about a little bit more. Uh, she was born Cora Scott. Can you talk about who she was and what some of her early experiences with spiritualism were like and then how she became so popular and why. So Cora was 
arguably the most famous uh, medium of uh, her day. And once again, um, there there is a particular voyeurism with stage mediumship uh, that is absent in sort of domestic uh, seances. And Cora was very young. She was 15 when she started, and she was very beautiful. And every single newspaper account of her just fulminates over her long blonde curls. And she was always... Um, you know, decked out in a slightly racy outfit. And so what would happen is you would you would have this just you know blossom of of youth and fragility who would then you know, sort of faint, right? Uh, so it, it was a real, you know, voyeuristic uh, aspect to this. But then she would stand up and start expounding on um, you know, slavery and philosophy and theology. And, uh, and she would command, you know, these audiences of thousands and tell them what they should be thinking about politics, what they should be thinking about abolition, what they should be thinking about women's rights. So uh, this too is is obviously very paradoxical, right? That these these women had this astonishing effect on the condition that it was understood that they were not the ones speaking. So Cora, as I say, was lovely, <laughs> and um, she was able to you know answer these these very specific questions to the you know satisfaction of all in very uncomfortable circumstances. Uh, so she was extremely popular. Uh, she did uh, close out, uh, there were some, uh, she would say things that were, you know, so scandalous at times that people would like flee the lecture hall, uh, mostly about women's rights and how everything's equal in the afterlife and how it should be here. Uh, so yes, she was, she was absolutely magnificently uh, popular. Cora, too, had a hard life, though, and she ended up uh, marrying several times uh, to the point where, like, tracking her name uh, in different publications is tricky. And the most famous one uh, was to her first husband, uh, B.F. Hatch, and she was 16, and he was... Um, well, not to put too fine a point on it, um, a a bit of a, a bit of a charlatan and something of a pimp. So uh, she divorced him, and it uh, made a huge media splash, enormous media splash. Uh, I have no doubt whatsoever that he was physically abusive to her. Everything seems to agree on this point. Uh, however, it it became a bit of a uh, a ballyhoo. So Emma Harding Britton uh, reported on this in a, a very, you know, this pernicious. He was forty, she was sixteen, right? Yeah, a little, a little sketchy. Um, uh, in this, you know, he was a predator, and he married her to exploit her, and you know, take her money, uh, and it was. You know, he was not a good guy. I'm not excusing him in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but some of that is actually not true. Like, she she kept all of her money. She had uh, $6,000, which is an astonishing amount of money in those days. And she kept 3000 of it uh, in the divorce. And 
it was basically, you know, she divorced him for maltreating her, uh, but it got sort of played out in the press as, you know, charlatans among us and the, uh, you know, predatory men who will take advantage of uh, young, talented mediums. Can you talk about uh, what the dynamics were of that moment in investigating spiritualism? Investigating spiritualism uh, was actually a bit of a sideline for a lot of people. And both uh, sides had undercover investigators. So you had a an entire series of doubters, uh, as is you know certainly the, the case with most of the academic um, inquiries. And then you actually had the pro-spiritualist folks. Uh, so the American Society for Psychical Research had uh, um, private investigators for years follow mediums around to see if uh, they were legit. And they were very invasive. So not only would they uh, show up as, you know, sitters in your seance, but they would like stalk your home and make sure you weren't stepping out on your husband or, I mean, they were, they were really invasive. Uh, and so both sides had this real investment in seeing whose reputation would last. Uh, so there, the the debunkers, you know, found you know different. Uh, you know, that this was you know a willful trickery and. You know, people in mourning, and that uh, their you know psychological you know their grieving made them vulnerable, and that these uh, these people were hucksters taking advantage of them. But on the other side, there are actually people investigating because they wanted to protect the reputation of spiritualism, and they wanted to get out ahead of uh, any sort of saucy story that might come out about one of their star mediums. So like William James uh, knew a bunch of these paranormal investigators and he would, um, you know, say, you know, you need to go check out, you know, this person in Boston and make sure that, you know, everything's on the up and up because I'm going to, you know, put my reputation, you know, behind her and say, I, I think she's the real deal. And I need to make sure that I'm not going to embarrass myself down the line. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Um, you also write that in the years uh, following the Civil War, uh, after Andrew Jackson Davis <laughs> published, I mean, one of his many, his many books, but after he publishes The Harbinger of Health, um, and, and and there are other developments as well, but the, there's a new and voracious interest in the embodied experience of living. And uh, Davis and other mediums like uh, Victoria Woodhull and Cora Hatch, uh, who had been healing mediums in the 1850s, see that really grow. Um, what was new about the interest in spiritualist healing in the 1860s and 70s? You have a physically wounded nation. And there, uh, the American landscape is bizarrely uh, 
conflicted about what to do with these uh, wounded soldiers. So, for example, you could not become a Freemason uh, if you have had any amputations. This is after the Civil War. It's like, mm-hmm. how many people have amputations after the Civil War? Right. So the the idea that you would actually exclude these people you know, who are heroes, wherever it is they come from, uh, because of of some, as was understood, physical defect, was an extraordinary slap in the face. So this idea of what constitutes wholeness and what constitutes health, um, and you should throw in Mary Baker Eddy uh, into this picture, right? So she's uh, publishing during this time. And so you really you're starting to see this um, argument, right, over whether the locus of the body properly belongs to the medical establishment or whether it properly belongs to uh, religious claims. And the medical establishment is, by and large, uh, white male um, degreed, but uh, cold, impersonal, and busy filling out forms. Whereas, like, so uh, A.J. Davis is a country doctor, right? He walks around and he attends to children with, you know, chickenpox and, you know, older people with arthritis. And he has a, a just a much kinder regimen than uh, a lot of the the people who are more uh, pedigreed. So, the the whole idea that your health is dependent on your spiritual well-being certainly has been around you know, you know since you know, the earth cooled but it became very it came into focus and prominence and was published about and the um, it becomes you know works into the sort of new thought movement and the you know the the power of mind over matter and that you have it within yourself to to heal and that your physical well-being is completely tied to your spiritual well-being uh, you know really coalesces uh, after the civil war and yeah, it needs to. Right? The, the country needed that uh, uh, at that time. So. Can you say more? This this is fantastic because one of the things you see is conflict between spiritualism and the uh, the, the new discipline of neurology. We talked at the beginning about uh, mesmerism and animal magnetism and some spirit and soul and mind stuff that was going on there with the human body. Um, what's this new discipline of neurology and and Hammond, who is kind of leading that, um, how does that come into conflict with spiritualism over these questions? Well, uh, from time immemorial, right, the position of the interpreter is going to determine the fate of the interpreted. So if you have a woman who is speaking in multiple voices, uh, she, if she's, you know, in control of it and is using that to travel and make some money and literally have her voice heard, then 
you know, she's a successful medium, right? But if she's not in control of it, then she's possessed, right? And should be, you know, hanged as a witch, or she is uh, mentally ill. So in uh, the 1880s, when you really see the rise of uh, neurology and psychology as medical disciplines, then they start, um, you know, edging into what has traditionally been religion's purview. And so when you have uh, women speaking in multiple voices, then, you know, traditionally, you know, okay, are you a saint? Are you a witch? Or are you mad? And spiritualism provided, uh, you know, sort of a subset of of the saint, right? It provided a, a way to uh, look at these women uh, who were in control of this you know, multiple personality and who were making a living doing it, who were seeing, you know, a lot of them saw the world, right, in a way that was unthinkable uh, 30 years before. So, and, you know, so then science and medicine uh, starts you know, creeping into this territory and it pathologizes this behavior. And so you start seeing diagnoses of schizophrenia. And here I mean schizophrenia as in, um, you know, a personality disorder with, you know, multiple speaking subjects. Now, admittedly, not every person was in control of your speaking subjects. And if you look at the just the rosters of insane asylums uh, in the 19th century, the number of women who are in there for being spiritualists or shakers uh, are extremely high. So the belief itself is pathologized, and then the actions are understood as uh, evidence of these women being disordered. So this becomes um, a bit of an argument <laughs> between these two camps, and spiritualists do take on these uh, these new pathologies, by which I mean they fight against them, and you know so there are discussions of um, the idea of an unconscious. Right. So in eighteen eighty, it was not clear to everyone that you had an unconscious. That's that's a a later construct that we all now think we have an unconscious in the way that I, I think I have a foot, right? So uh, the the whole idea that you could have this controlling uh, subterranean force uh, was the spiritualists were just against this. They were aghast at this as a concept that, you know, so when you went into a trance state, you were reaching a, a higher venue, right? You were... So, you know, the dead aren't perfect, but they are elevated, right? So the directionality of a, a trance state is superior, right? It's upper. Uh, whereas, you know, certainly the directionality of a Freudian universe, right, is, is always negative, right? Your unconscious is where, you know, you keep your monsters under the bed. And they saw this coming, and they tried very hard to get out in front of it. Uh, and Eventually, they were not successful, but uh, they they did launch a, an actual campaign against the pathologizing of uh, multiple people speaking. Mm. Mm -hmm. One of the other things we see uh, starting in the eighteen seventies is, uh, you know, is with Henry Steele Alcott and uh, Emma Harding Britton and uh, and Madame Blavatsky in the founding of the Theosophical Society. Uh, 
thinking about it from Emma's perspective, maybe, you know, she had been such a chronicler and synthesizer of spiritualism. Um, what attracted her to this new tradition or discipline, and what influence did the founding of the Theosophical Society have on spiritualism uh, within the American religious landscape? Well, Emma was at the initial uh, 1872 uh, party in New York that founded the Theosophical Society. And what the Theosophical Society and, and uh, Madame Blavatsky in, in particular proposed is that spiritualism was, this is my phrasing obviously, but uh, too exoteric. Right, that uh, actual occult work requires uh, initiation. It requires adepts, uh, and it requires secrecy. So, if you could, you know, talk to the dead, you were approaching something uh, important, but you weren't there yet. So, they actually set out to create a much more. Um, esoteric as in actively uh, secret and requiring gradations of uh, initiation that sort of spun off of some of the the primary uh, principles of spiritualism. So Helena Petrovna Blavatsky had started off, um, well, <laughs> uh, she was from Odessa and she came um, by way of Egypt and Paris and all these uh, interesting places to show up in New York. And uh, she christened herself uh, a, a, a countess, which is probably complete hogwash. And, you know, had people call her Madame. And she initially, she was a, she was a character, my gracious. She was a... Uh, she was short and had blue, blue, blue eyes and kind of looked like a refrigerator and um, had a uh, – she, she smoked a hundred cigarettes a day. So you can imagine what a fabulous voice she must have had. Um, and she had, you know, gone undercover and drag with the Sufis in Egypt and somehow knew more about Parisian – Friend, you know, uh, Freemasonry than she should have been able to as a woman, and so she had all this this fascinating knowledge, um, and so she took the, the sort of basics of spirit communication and turned them on their heads. So she said, when you are talking to a spirit, you're not actually talking to um, a consciousness; you're talking to a energy residue, right? So if so-and-so dies, then so-and-so's energy residue will linger on Earth for a while. And when you contact them in a seance, you're only getting the appearance of actual communication. Uh, so she doesn't denigrate spiritualism per se, um, but she does try to flip uh, the valence of talking with the dead, right? It's too easy, and it is um, not the real deal for her. So this is appealing, obviously, right? Secret societies are always appealing. You, you want to have some sort of knowledge that other people don't have. If it's, you know, the, the whole point of having a secret is that you, you've got some sort of 
power, if only momentarily, you know, until that bubble bursts and then nobody cares, right? Uh, so, so Emil was was interested in this uh, more occult, esoteric, initiatory practice, but uh, she. Now, as one might say about Vodansi, she worshipped with both hands, right? So she never stopped believing that spiritualism actually contacted the dead in a, a very meaningful way. Um, but she didn't think that that was uh, exclusive. Uh, you know, so she thought you could simultaneously be a theosophist and a, a spiritualist, and she was successful at that. Um but it was it was quite the movement, right? Um, and it was also unlike spiritualism, which you know, as we've discussed, has, is very optimistic in so many ways. Uh, theosophy is uh, paranoid; <laughs> it's a massive conspiracy theory. So, according to uh, Blavatsky, uh, in her first iteration, she has these two periods. Uh, there's the so-called Egyptian period and then the so-called Buddhist period. Uh, but in the Egyptian period, which is when Emma was involved and this was taking place in New York, uh, she she writes Isis Unveils, which is this massive two-volume tome on how everybody in the world has always had access to some obscured truth. Again, friendly, multicultural, clearly a child of spiritualism in so many ways. But then the forces of power have spent all millennia trying to keep you from it. So quite paranoid. <laughs> and so this is a, an enormous conspiracy theory. Um, I think still the greatest that America has ever produced. And I include the lizardmen in that list. <laughs> so... Uh, it it has a different trajectory, right? It it is not uh, progressive or kind or healing at the core of it. Uh, it's it's much more about self transformation. It's much more about uh, secrecy and inner sanctum. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's great. Um, we're headed towards our wrap up, but before we get there. Could you say a little bit more about the American Society of Psychical Research uh, and its founding in 1885 and how it went on to relate to spiritualism and spiritualists as we're headed toward the end of the 19th century? Sure. So the Society for Psychical Research was actually started in Cambridge, and it uh, included on its roster every serious intellectual of, of 1880. And it uh, actually had a bunch of uh, classics professors and Conan Doyle and the founder of modern criminology, uh, Cesare Lombroso, and the guy who uh, created underwater telegraphy, Sir Oliver Lodge. I mean, it was, it was just a roster of who's who in the academic community. And it set out to... Uh, question things like uh, the existence of telepathy and uh, the claims of spiritualism and things like um, uncanny dreams, right, and hauntings. So these were its, its main foci. And it walked into it with a pretty open attitude, to be honest. Uh, so it would 
you have a, a case of somebody waking up in England knowing for some reason that their husband uh, died overnight, right? And then two weeks later, it shows up in the newspaper that this ship sank off of the coast of Australia. Right? So they would approach this. It's like, okay, well, you know, one answer is that she's clairvoyant, right? Uh, another answer is that thought transference is possible. So the the idea that we have a, a physical, grounded, material uh, possibility of exchanging thoughts across distance. So it was not supernatural, right? It was just not yet understood. So this kind of conversation went on for a very long time, and uh, Mark Twain participated. It was, it was really uh, quite the whole. Yeah, it was all star. Um, they even got Darwin involved, right? And Darwin had no interest in any of this, um, but you know, he he went for a little while. Um, so there's an American offshoot that uh, begins, and. Uh, William James is, you know, it's uh, most famous you know, investigator, believer. And James, uh, if you just read his psychology, right? So if you just take, uh, you know, say his lectures on religion, he does not agree with what will become, right, uh, certainly – the, the nature of the psyche is still at stake, right? And some people believe, like William James, that the, the psyche naturally points toward the good and that humans, you know, while not, you know, morally good necessarily, uh, that human nature points toward something greater than themselves, Right, whereas Freud uh, is obviously going to uh, say that everything refers to your interior life and that uh, a lot of it is uh, selfish. So the, the nature of human nature is at stake here. And James does not uh, buy into spiritualism uh, wholesale at all. But he does think that the unconscious can communicate with, with spirits greater than they. And it's, uh, he, he finds, you know, his, this one woman who, you know, he, he sex this, you know, detective on for years and she's just infallible. She's a perfect little middle-class lady who, you know, is, you know, a good wife and lives in a cute little house and wears gloves and is proper all the time. And he um, he calls her, you know, his uh, his black swan, right? Oh, no, sorry, that's not it. Um, anyway, Mrs. Piper. So Mrs. Piper is just perfect uh, forever. And so he clearly believes in the powers of Mrs. Piper, but he does not... Uh, wholesale buy into you know everybody who claims to have these sort of supernatural powers, and so he thinks it's possible. But he also uh, concedes that there's a, a lot of uh, chickenry going on, and uh, but right, he's he's this amazing name, and he uh, 
his his dad was a Swedenborgian mystic, and uh, obviously his his brother, you know, wrote the Bostonians, which makes fun of the spiritualists, you know, uh, with great frequency. Uh, so he uh, they they clearly come from this very religious family uh, to which they reacted um, quite differently. Uh, but yeah, so he he gives a real intellectual uh, imprimatur to the the entire spiritualist cause. Mm. That's great. Um, as we head into that end of the century, uh, you mentioned that theosophy has a much more paranoid uh, attitude or mood to it. Um, as spiritualism, uh, in, especially in the United States, uh, builds some institutions, tries to put together some organizations that will last, you know, after all the annual conventions, 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 but no uh, church, there are some groups that are that are formed. Uh, you mentioned Lilydale earlier. There are some communities that are that are founded to last. Um, does spiritualism uh, maintain its kind of optimism and spirit of progress uh, at the end of the century? With the kind of organizations you're talking about, I would say absolutely, uh, and I would say as it continues through today. Uh, what you have, however, um, after World War I, uh, first of all, the, the whole edifice is crumbling when everyone starts relying on materializations, right? So when you're talking about, you know, a trumpet playing in 1852, okay, that's fine. But when you're talking about manifesting multiple ghosts in full body while they run around and, you know, do embarrassing colonialist things, um, then you're really, you know, inviting charlatans into your home. And uh, as people got sort of inured to spiritualism as a domestic form of uh, aid with grieving, right, then they, they start demanding more and more showmanship. And this cycle of demand and showmanship, you know, just ate away at, at the core of this as a, a religious belief. And so it, it, morphs into things uh, as various as stage magic and uh, obviously the advent of photography is very important to spiritualism. And, you know, then you start getting into the production of ectoplasm. And so it, it gets um, more amorphous and less, I dislike the word authentic, but heartfelt. Mm. However, the groups you're talking about, um, yes, absolutely, the Casadeca community, the Lilydale community, um, these, these folks understood perhaps the single most important thing about spiritualism, and that is, is the vanguard of multiculturalism. Right, so uh, the fact that diversity is one of the first words that comes out of my mouth in a class, I, I really do think is related directly to spiritualism. And uh, so, of course, what happens there as Americans learn more about Asian religions uh, over the course of the century, particularly going to uh, two wars with Buddhist countries and, you know, bringing home war brides and then, you know, the hippies and the beats, you know, love Buddhism and, you know, people start getting interested in karma and reincarnation. Uh, these get sort of melted. So uh, New Age, if you will, 
is a, a concatenation of these sorts of interests, right? That things are improving, but it might be over multiple lifetimes. And there are uh, ethical checks and balances like karma in ways that simply did not exist uh, in early spiritualism. And, you know, how do you account for improvement uh, across reincarnated lives? And, you know, do you come back with a certain, you know, squad of people, right? Uh, is there such a thing as true love? How does it manifest over multiple lifetimes? So these all kind of uh, work together over the course of the 20th century uh, to create uh, a modern spiritualism, which is still very, very invested in uh, multiculturalism and in the idea that there is no hell and that uh, God does not divide part of the world and condemn them, uh, but rather that everyone is on the same path and that uh, progress might not be evident in this particular moment, but that it is inevitable. Mm. Mm -hmm. Can you extend that thought just a bit? Because at the end of your book, you write that spiritualism's main contribution is in the field of ethics, and some of what you just said really addresses that. Um, but how do you describe that contribution of spiritualism to ethics. Um, and is what you just said the main way we can see its influence today? Or are there any other places where uh, spiritualism's contribution to ethics really still appears in American life? I completely think that spiritualism's primary contribution is to ethics and it is to the dismantling of a, a duality of heaven and hell mm. and to the relegating of all of your neighbors who are not exactly like you to hell. <laughs> so uh, I teach a class in world religions we just met yesterday and I said, you know, I, I presume that there's no one in this room who would look around uh, at your fellow students and say, I'm sorry, dude, you're really, you know, you're a nice, interesting person, but you're going to hell. Right? And that, of course, there are people who still believe that, uh, and there are many hardcore people who still believe that, but it is not the norm, right? And it certainly was before spiritualism came. Uh, spiritualism came on stage. And there were obviously there were other people um, who, you know, didn't actively believe in a hell. The Unitarians, the Universalists, right? Everyone was going, you know, to heaven. That's you know, what Universalism is. Uh, but as a, a mainstream, loud, splashy movement, spiritualism really was a driving force behind uh, nascent multiculturalism. And I think that that is its lasting contribution. And when you take things like uh, you know, exclusivity of salvation, right? It's like, well, you know, my team is right and your team is wrong. And then we're going to, you know, have this, you know, ghastly battle and then you're all going to lose, right? That, that, uh, that apocalyptic sort of thinking, that binary sort of thinking accounts for so much of, you know, historical world ills and for people feeling that they are, righteous right, in their belief in their exclusive truth claim. And spiritualist just takes that and dismantles it, right? It just snaps that apocalyptic binary. And so 
uh, gradual improvement with no judgment and no losers uh, is how I would characterize, you know, vast majority of college students, I'm happy to say. Hey folks, it's Aaron here. I hope today's interview helped you deepen your understanding of everything involved in the world of spiritualism. But we're not done yet. We have more interviews to share with you, so stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear a preview of next week's interview. Next time on Unobscured. Obviously, comparing the 1850s or the 1870s with the 1920s, so much had changed across the turn of that long 19th century. But so much hadn't changed. World War I decimated Europe with a kind of violence and carnage never seen before. The new 20th century had invented new weapons of war, but offered little new to help survivors grapple or cope with the aftermath. People were and are still asking, how can the dead speak to the living as something other than the haunting, seething presence of absence? The resurgence is real. I mean, it's a different resurgence, but the, I mean, I'm, I'm, now, I'm now in the 1920s, and Thomas Edison hits the press in 1920 with the news that he is building an apparatus to contact the dead. And all of the press is framing it at the time, from the New York Times to Scientific America, as a new resurgence in spiritualism after the war. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane in partnership with iHeartRadio. Research and writing for this season is all the work of my right-hand man, Carl Nellis, and the brilliant Chad Lawson composed the brand new soundtrack. Learn more about our contributing historians, source material, and links to our other shows over at historyunobscured.com. And until next time, thanks for listening. Unobscured is a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.